Well, good morning. Uh, it is good to see you. And if you have your Bible with you, we'd love for you to open it now to Acts chapter 15, verse 36. That's on page 924 in your pew Bibles. This morning, we're going to hit a bit of a speed bump in our journey uh, through the book of Acts. Everything so far has been wonderful. Uh, it's, we've been riding high. Uh, we've, we've seen healthy community. We've seen powerful prayer. We've seen the church beginning to launch out into, into mission. And then, of course, last week we saw the church handle, just absolutely handle their first theological crisis. They, they hit that out of the park. Everything is going really, really, really well. And then this happens. Paul and Barnabas disagree strenuously. And they're not able to work it out. They, they can't come to a reasonable compromise. They can't come to an agreement. And so the dream team breaks apart and they go their separate ways. How, how did that happen? Why did that happen? And then, of course, I suppose a related question is, why in the world is this story in the Bible? If, if the Bible had a decent PR department, there is no way this story is in the Bible. It's embarrassing. And, and yet, here it is. And so from that, we assume that God wants us to see this. He wants us to know that sometimes really good, born-again, spirit-filled, Jesus-following Christians disagree. He wants us to know that so that we're not destabilized when that happens and so that we can game plan a little bit what we ought to do if that happens to us. So hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you're a regular Bible reader, if you use um, the RMM, the Robert Murray McShane Bible Reading Plan, or any, any Bible reading plan, I guess, uh, that takes you through the whole Bible in a year, you know the experience, don't you, of running into this passage. It's like, it's like hitting a brick wall. Everything's been going so great, but then all of a sudden the balloon pops, and the two most important leaders in the Great Commission, in the early days of the Great Commission, have a disagreement. They can't get past it, and, and they separate. The dream team breaks apart, and we can't help but wonder what in the world is going on here. Now, the circumstances themselves are actually fairly mundane. Paul and Barnabas agree that it would be a good idea to go back around and visit all these churches. If you think back, some of these churches they'd only been able to spend you know, a few weeks at most, a couple of months with, they're brand new believers, and, and they're folks without all the same kind of background that probably the folks in Jerusalem had. They didn't have the same Bible training, Bible awareness. And so they think, well, let's kill two birds with one stone. 
let's, uh, we've got to deliver this news from the Jerusalem Council to all the churches. Now, we could send that out by messengers, but what, what if we did it ourselves? What if we went back around and we delivered this ruling from the council, but then also spent some good time with all of those churches, giving them the training and the discipleship that they need? So everybody was on page there. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them, again, as their sort of junior partner and porter, but Paul does not agree. Mark had abandoned them in Pamphylia. And so in Paul's mind, he'd already demonstrated that he just didn't have the stomach and the stamina for this kind of work. Why would we endanger the mission to give this young man a chance to redeem himself? That just didn't make sense to Paul. But Barnabas felt very strongly, and neither felt like compromising. And so they split up, and they went their separate ways. Literally, uh, if you know your geography, it says that Paul went, Paul appears to have gone north overland, uh, and he was going to hit, start with the last church that they had visited. And then Barnabas, he set sail west. And so maybe, I, I think a decent guess was that they meant to meet up in the middle. Whether that happened or not, we don't know. According to church history, Barnabas was actually martyred on Cyprus, the first island that he intended to visit there, as mentioned in Acts 15. Uh, he was martyred. He was uh, pulled out of the synagogue in Salamis and stoned. Now, we're not 100% sure if that happened on the, that first visit to Cyprus or maybe a little later. We don't know. What we know is that Paul continued to think of Barnabas as a dear friend and a co-laborer. He refers to him as such in 1 Corinthians 9.6. We also know that Paul actually later in life became very fond of John Mark and worked closely with him. We know that from 2 Timothy 4.11. So this was not a permanent breach, but it was a significant disagreement. And it just feels so very odd after reading what we read in Acts 15 about the Jerusalem council. But odd or not, embarrassing or not, it is here in the Bible. And so, again, we assume that it's here for a reason, and it does give us the opportunity to talk about why this sort of thing happens from time to time. Why is it that good, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, Holy Spirit-filled Christians, why is it sometimes that they come to such strong disagreements? Why does that happen? And, of course, it gives us a chance to game plan how we will respond should that ever happen to us. So let's talk about those things. Let's talk first about why it is that good Christians do sometimes disagree. There are at least three reasons. Now, of course, there are probably 10 or 15 or 16 reasons. But there are three that come immediately to mind and that seem to be involved in most of the significant disagreements that occur. The first reason is this. Because the Bible doesn't speak with equal clarity to every issue. I think that's important for us to understand. Good Christians should never disagree with one another as to whether or not it is a good or a bad thing to commit adultery. Amen? Because the Bible is remarkably clear on that. The seventh commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay, so bingo, bango, Bob's your uncle. If, if two Christians are having a disagreement about whether adultery is a good idea or a bad idea, then one of those people is not a Christian. Amen? Amen. Okay. But what about baptism? Because good Christians do disagree about that. Some people say that it's good to baptize the babies of born-again believers. And they'll say, hey, you know what? Think about it. In the Old Testament, when somebody joined the covenant community, 
that, that person, the head of that household, was circumcised, and then all the members of his household were circumcised as well, even, even the babies. And so if the entrance ritual in the Old Testament was, was extended to, to babies, the babies of believers, why wouldn't we do that now? It's an interesting argument. Of course, on the other side will be people who will say, well, but, but wait a second, we were told when we switched from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, we were told there'd be differences. In fact, Jeremiah 31, 32 says explicitly, the new covenant that I'm going to make with you is not like the covenant that I made with your father. So we were alerted. There were turn signals there. Hey, not everything's going to be the same. And one of the things we see as we move from Old Covenant to New Covenant, it's a, it's a lot less ethnic, the church now, isn't it? The covenant community. It's a lot less tribal. It is a lot more personal. Don't, we often say in church, don't we, that God has no grandchildren, meaning like you can't, you can't come on judgment day and stand before God, and he says, well, why should I let you into heaven? You can't say, well, my grandmother used to play the organ at First Baptist Church. Well, that's interesting. My grandfather used to teach Sunday school at the old building. Again, interesting. Not relevant to your situation, though, right? Because the issue is, are you in a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Yes or no? And so we would say, listen, it, it, it makes sense to, to wait un, until people have come to the place where they're ready to put faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and then have them express that through baptism. And we would add, and plus there's, there's no Scripture reference in the New Testament showing infants getting baptized. So we've landed where we've landed. But let's at least be humble enough to admit that neither side has been able to land a knockout blow on this issue, which is why we continue to have Baptists and Presbyterians, Pentecostals and Lutherans, Mennonites and Anglicans, and we probably will do until the Lord returns, because the Bible just does not speak with as much clarity on this issue as it does, for example, on the issue of adultery. Brothers and sisters, it's very important for us to understand that to refer to the scriptures as infallible and inerrant, as we happily do, does not imply that they address all issues with equal clarity. The Bible is true in all that it affirms, but there are things it doesn't speak to and there are questions it doesn't answer. It doesn't tell us how to make muffins. It doesn't tell us what type of music God likes best. It doesn't tell us whether it's okay to sing the national anthem in church on Canada Day. And it doesn't tell us explicitly or clearly at what age a person should get baptized. So we're going to need to exercise some judgment and discernment every once in a while. And given our frailties and our limitations as human beings, that means that from time to time, good Christians are going to disagree. They're also going to disagree because we're all influenced by our relationships, experiences, and circumstances. I can totally understand why the Apostle Paul was hesitant to give John Mark another try. After all, he'd he'd let them down on the first trip, early on in their first trip. If you remember, they went, uh, they've sailed west initially from uh, where they started out in Antioch. They sailed to, to the island of Crete, then they went up into Pamphylia. And then they did all this through the mountains, hiking and trekking. And Mark bailed on them at the base of the mountain. That's super not helpful. 
right? The whole reason they brought him along was because he was young and healthy, and presumably it was going to be his job to carry the baggage. And now we got poor old, half-blind, bandy-legged Apostle Paul lugging his stuff up the side of a mountain. And the whole time he's like, young people, yeah! I totally get that. Listen, I'm 49 years old. The Apostle Paul in this story we think is in his early 50s. He's like 52. I'm 49 years old, and there are people I will not take on a canoe trip today that I would have happily taken on a canoe trip 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I used to lead trips through Algonquin Park all the time, and, uh, and I remember doing trips where we had multiple two- to three-kilometer portages. And I would happily, in my early 20s, I would happily pick up a canoe, I'd have my pack, I'd pick up one of the canoes, and I'd run that three kilometers to the end of the portage. I'd put that canoe down, run back, pick up another canoe, run back, put that down, run back, pick up a third canoe, run back, and put it down, all the while passing these 14-year-olds moving at this pace, you know, (laughs) carrying, you know, an apple and a life jacket. (laughs) Right? So... I would happily have done that 20 years ago, but if you want to come on a canoe trip with me today, I'm doing a fitness test with you in the parking lot, right? I want you to drop, I want to see 50 push-ups, and then I want you to pick up a 16-foot Michicraft and jog that down to Kuchiching, put it down, and come back. And if you can do that without vomiting in the parking lot, then you can come. Because I'm not carrying your stuff. I want you to carry my stuff. I might need you to carry my carcass. That's where I'm at now. So I 100% get where the Apostle Paul is here. But I can also totally understand where Barnabas is coming from here. Barnabas is a human being too, and human beings instinctively identify with their relatives. And according to Colossians 4.10, John Mark was his cousin. And that's a thing. We all tend to look at our children and our nieces and our nephews through a familial lens. We want to give them the benefit of the doubt. We see their potential. Sometimes, let's be honest, we overestimate their potential. But that's okay, right? That's very human. That's totally appropriate. But it does affect our decision-making as it appears to have done here. Now, I think if we're honest, we will all admit that some of these forces were at play during the recent conflict and crisis we experienced due to COVID. Think back for a second to all the disagreements that we experienced between born-again, Jesus-loving, spirit-filled, Bible-believing folks. It was traumatic, wasn't it, to observe some of that? Now, by and large, here's what I noticed. I, I think we underestimated the extent to which our personal circumstances and intimate relationships affected our perceptions. It seems to me that if you were young and healthy, not exclusively, but by and large, let's say 90%, if you were young and healthy, then you just wanted to run the gauntlet, right? Oh, you got to work. You've got to provide for your family. And so if you were young and healthy, you wanted to run the gauntlet, you wanted everything open all the time. I totally get that. But if you were older and retired, and maybe looking after your 94-year-old mother, then you wanted to shut the world down hard. You wanted everyone to wear a mask, maybe three masks. And if you could stay home and get your shot and hunker down, that'd be awesome. You felt threatened, and justifiably so, so you chose to err on the side of caution. I get that too. All of that 
makes perfect sense to me. All of that is what you'd expect from a group of frail human beings who love people and have had only one life and who are dealing with a very confusing situation. See, sometimes when the Bible isn't as clear as we might like, because of these personal factors, because of these relational connections, good Christians are going to see things differently. And then thirdly, good Christians are occasionally going to disagree because sometimes equally true biblical principles appear to be in conflict. That seems to be the essence of what's going on here. I, Howard Marshall, in his commentary on this passage says, this is a classic example of the perpetual problem of whether to place the interests of the individual or of the work as a whole first. And there is no rule of thumb for dealing with it. It's a very helpful insight, isn't it? See, in the New Testament, you can see both of those principles at play. You can see a concern for the individual. You can see a concern for the group. Both of those are legit, right? If we wanted to play sword drill, you could fire a verse at me. I could fire a verse at you. You could fire a verse at me. I could fire a verse at you. See, Barnabas was concerned for the individual. Mark was wrecked by the fact that, that he had bailed on this trip, that he had let Barnabas and Paul down. Here was a young man whose sense of self was very fragile all of a sudden, who really needed, he, he needed a win. He needed to get back up on the horse. And so Barnabas is saying, hey, listen, even if it does add risk to our trip, even if he does end up slowing us down, this young man needs a chance. All right, I see that. And I got verses for that, right? Didn't Jesus say that the good shepherd leaves the 99 to go searching for the one who you know, managed to get himself stuck in a hole? So I see that. But then the Apostle Paul is thinking about the big picture. He's aware. We gotta, we're, we're at a crisis point here. We have just had a decision from the Jerusalem Council that, that is going to keep the door open for Gentile mission. You know what could close that door in a hurry? If all the Gentile churches that we just planted went squirrely, went sideways, got sucked into idolatry or immorality or something like that. Immaturity becomes an argument for not doing stuff, doesn't it? And so Paul is like, we need to get out there and we need to spend time with these churches. We need to make sure that they're well planted. We need to make sure that nobody can say, well, this is why you shouldn't do ministry among the Gentiles anyway, right? So we need to get them mature. We need to get them going. This is really, really important. And so we can't be taking somebody with us who's already demonstrated they don't have the stamina for this kind of work. You know, and Paul might have said to Barnabas, hey, brother, I got news for you, man. Sometimes in the church, the individual has to sacrifice for the good of the community. And we've got verses for that too, right? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And what? To give his life as a ransom for many. So, you know, like sacrificing for the many is core Christianity. Ah. So we both got Jesus on our side. So who's right? We ran into this challenge over the course of COVID as well, didn't we? The reason it was so hard to figure out what to do was because there were verses in the Bible seemingly pointing us in different directions. Romans 13, 1 to 2, for example, says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Okay, well, (laughs) that seems pretty clear. Sounds like if the government tells you to stay home until they've got this thing under control, then we all ought to do that. But then we got this other verse. 
Right? Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that passage seems to be saying it's really important for us to get together. All of us kind of lean out of the Christian faith, right? Like you get somebody in and they lean out. Uh, their lusts are pulling them out. Their culture's pulling them out. The neighbors are pulling them out. So we got to get together on a regular basis to encourage each other to carry on, to carry on in love and good deeds. And we got to do that all the more as you see the day approaching. And by the way, anybody see the day approaching? Right. So this is important. So how do we hold these passages in tension? Well, as you may recall, unless you've erased all of COVID from your brain, and if you do know how to do that, please see me after the service. As you may recall, we did not all agree on how to hold these things in tension. At times, things even got a little heated because everybody had a verse. Everybody's cause was righteous. That's going to happen from time to time. Even when everyone involved is a real believer, filled with the Holy Spirit, committed to the authority of God's word. Sometimes the Bible doesn't provide a clear and definite answer to the questions that we're asking. Sometimes our personal relationships, experiences, and circumstances influence our judgment. Sometimes we feel pushed in different directions by equally true, beautiful, and binding biblical principles. And when that happens, even good Christians can find themselves in disagreement. It's important for us to know that. It's also important to think about what we would do should that happen to us. So let's talk about that. Again, we assume that the Holy Spirit had a reason for including this painful, even embarrassing story. We need to know, as I said, that Christians will occasionally disagree. That's helpful. When that happens, we're not destabilized. But it's also good to think ahead. So here are some things I would suggest you think about doing. Now, this isn't everything that you'd want to do in a situation like this, but I think this is a good start. First thing you need to do is this. You need to count the cost because some arguments are simply not worth having. I think one of the things that COVID revealed about the North American Evangelical Church is that we fight too much, too easy, and too often. I mean, did we really need to anathematize one another over COVID protocols? Did, did, did anyone really need to leave their church over that? It didn't look to me like any first order issues were at stake. And everybody had a verse, so it's not a matter of like, well, some people were taking the Bible seriously and some people weren't. No, it's some people were leaning on one biblical principle heavier than they were leaning on another. But it doesn't look to me like faithfulness was the issue in most cases. I just think we were seeing through a glass darkly and we probably all could have handled it better. All of us, myself included. I don't think anybody gets 100 out of 100 for how they handled that once-in-a-lifetime leadership challenge. I think we probably all said more than we should have. I think we probably all waded further in than we needed to. And the thing is this. Even when you're right, conflict comes at a cost. Apostle Paul made that point to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6. Folks in that church were actually taking each other to small claims court over nonsense, petty things, petty disagreements, property disagreements. And Paul said, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He's saying, is this worth it? 
And so you, you want to say how I'm right. I'm right. Listen to that. Paul's saying, I don't even care. Is this worth it? Are you, are you willing to sacrifice the mission and endanger the reputation of Jesus Christ in order to be right in this situation? Come on. Whenever Christians disagree, it comes at a cost. The neighbors who know that we're supposed to be the, you know, love one another people, they're going to point at us and say, why should we listen to you if you can't get along with each other? That's a decent question. Do you think the neighbors were asking that question about us over the course of COVID? Oh, you know they were. That argument came at a cost. And I suspect that 10 years from now, we'll all wonder whether it was worth it. Now, to be clear, some conflicts are worth it. Some arguments are worth having. We led a 10-year argument in the CBOQ because we honestly felt like the gospel was at stake. And so we felt like that was a conversation worth having. But all conversations, even the ones worth having, come at a cost. And so the first thing you need to do is count the cost. You need to determine whether your disagreement is worth fighting out to the death. And if it's not, then why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? There is a place for that in the Christian life. That's a real category. And mature believers understand that. So count the cost. And then secondly, listen widely. We talked a bit about this last week. At the Jerusalem Council, they heard testimony, they shared stories, they consulted the scriptures, all in a multipolar leadership environment. The apostles were there, the elders were there, the people as a whole gave their assent. There was no single dominant personality enforcing their viewpoint on the group. It was a council in every respect of the word. And there's safety in that. The Bible says, in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Listen, plurality of leadership tends to function as a curb on extremism. And it is meant to. Beware churches where one voice dominates. Beware of churches where the elders do not have the ability, the ability to restrain the pastor. No one person has all the answers. Even among the apostles, there was plurality. Even among the apostles, they needed to listen to each other in order to correctly preserve and transmit the gospel. Do you remember that time when the apostle Paul had to rebuke Peter to his face because Peter had become confused about the implications of table fellowship? Even the apostles needed to listen to one another. Even the apostles did not anoint one apostle as the one voice over all the others. Listen, can I tell you something? that I've learned? Over the course of COVID, it really does seem to me that people who were members of churches and who did most of their thinking with their brothers and sisters in Christ and who were willing to listen to the counsel of their duly elected elders, they tended to do much better than those who operated independently and sought out guidance and leadership on the internet. Because of our human frailty, we need to listen in community 
and we need to listen in a context of plural leadership. And then two, I would argue that we also need to listen to history. It also seems to me that the better you knew your history, specifically your church history, the more stable and reasonable you were during the recent crisis. Now, of course, I want to be clear, history and tradition are not authoritative over and against the Bible. But where the Bible does not speak definitively to a particular controversy, and where we're relying on judgment and wisdom, it can be very helpful to listen to those who've gone before. G.K. Chesterton said that tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. We will have the dead at our councils, closed quote. I think there's great wisdom in that. Good decisions are more likely to be made in community with our Bibles open on our laps with our ears open to brothers and sisters in Christ, and not just brothers and sisters all in the same stage of life as us. Brothers and sisters who are actually grandmas and grandpas. Brothers and sisters who are actually nieces and nephews. Good decisions are made when we listen widely to one another and when we also receive input from our locally elected leaders. When we do that, by and large, And when we listen to the dead at our councils, when we take instruction from history, we come to better decisions. Now, to be fair, listening widely like that is not going to eliminate every possible disagreement between Christians, but it should eliminate some, and it should make agreement, harmony, and stability more likely. It should make things better. And sometimes in a fallen world, until Jesus comes, Better is as good as it gets. Which leads us to the last thing we need to say here. If you can't come to an agreement, if you can't get on the same page as your brothers and sisters in Christ, then like Paul and Barnabas in this story, do everything you possibly can to preserve the mission. I love what David Peterson points out here. Commenting on this passage, he says, Luke does not hide their sharp disagreement or the sadness of their parting company. At the same time, however, he shows that good actually came out of this situation with two mission teams being formed and both teams being commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. Hallelujah. Yes, it is sad that they couldn't work this out. Yes, it is sad that the dream team had to be disbanded. But thanks be to God, they did everything they could to preserve the mission. They didn't get distracted. They didn't spend six months trying to wrestle this disagreement into submission. They didn't burn through the goodwill of the church by blasting each other in the bulletin. They weren't so sure they were right that they were willing to write each other off as people. When they hit an impasse, they wisely agreed to disagree, and they carried on with the mission. Thanks be to God for that. I I think that's the answer. When people ask us, you know, why is there a Baptist church, a Presbyterian church, 
and a Pentecostal church and an Anglican church in every town in this country. People will point that out regularly when you're engaging with non-believers or neighbors. They'll point that out as though that represents or that reveals some kind of inherent flaw in Christianity. But I don't think it does. I think all it proves is that we see through a glass darkly and we've been given an urgent mission. So it just doesn't make sense for us to put that on hold while we try to wrestle down and achieve perfect agreement on absolutely every issue. Listen, brothers and sisters, I think we just need to accept the fact that we're not going to know everything perfectly until Jesus comes back. So we're going to do our best. We're going to believe all that has been revealed to us. We're going to try to use wisdom and discernment. We're going to try and listen well and wisely. But if disagreement persists, well then, we're going to shake hands. We're going to divide the task, and we're going to get on with the mission. Jesus is going to sort out who was right and wrong at the end. I imagine I'm going to be standing up there with some of my Presbyterian pastor friends or my Anglican pastor friends, and I'm going to be watching them, and I'm going to be going, ooh, making a quick revision to my own position right here, right? We'll sort it out at the end. I am okay saying, you know what, I am not, I've, maybe this is like a late in life thing, maybe this is a health crisis, I don't know, maybe, I have no idea, but all of a sudden I find that I am comfortable with my own limitations. And people will sometimes come to me, I had somebody send me something this week, not from this church, but somebody from out there on the interweb, send, send me a book in the mail, and they wanted me to read, and they wanted me to enter into this thing, they wanted me to basically prove or disprove the reliability of the media, and I thought... I don't have time for that. I'm trying to finish a study on 2 Corinthians. I don't have time for that. And, and other people who want me to wade into you know, scientific questions, how deadly really was COVID and how this, I'm like, I took two science courses in university and none at seminary. Do you know how long it would take me to develop the competency to speak usefully to that issue? I'm not sure I have enough years left on the earth. I'm, okay, I'm, just, I'm at a place where I'm okay with that. I'm like, I know what's, I know what's in, this, in, in this book, and, and I want to study this book, and I want to be responsive to this book, but I get that because of my frailty, because of my personal life experience, because of the relationships that the Lord has blessed me with, I get that I might be seeing some stuff that you're not. I'm cool with that. If we can get on the same page and work together here, then let's do. But if not, then rather than fight with you, why don't you just find a good group of brothers and sisters who see things your way, and you do your thing. And so if it may be like Paul and Barnabas, we'll be going up this way and over here, and maybe you'll be going over here, and maybe we'll meet in the middle, or maybe the Lord will come back in the meantime. I don't know, but let's get on with it, right? Do we need to fight all this down? Do we need to sort all this out? I don't know. Here's what I know. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. That's what I know. There's a world to be reached. There's a task to be finished. And it's going to take the whole church to get it done. So like I said, even if like Paul and Barnabas, we need to go our separate ways, then let's go ahead and do that. Let's work together to the extent that we can. Let's keep our convictions and opinions in proper perspective. Let's protect the reputation and honor of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And let's get on with the mission. Because the hour is late, the stakes are high, and the fields are white unto harvest. Oh, God, help. Let's pray together.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story, this sad story, this speed bump, this thing we did not expect. We needed to see it. We needed to be reminded that we see through a glass darkly, that sometimes good Christians who love you, who really do have a high view of the Word, who really are filled with the Spirit, are just not going to see eye to eye. And we need to handle that in a wise and humble manner, but we also need to get on with the mission. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us not to be distracted. Help us not to be led into things that are above our pay grade. Help us not to be discouraged by our frailties and limitations. Help us keep our eyes on Jesus. And help us to keep our our plow in the soil. Lord, give us strength, wisdom, and help for these things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.